Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Ben Lam. He's an entrepreneur, CEO of Colossal, and a founder. What if Jurassic Park's dream of bringing extinct creatures back to life was possible? Well, it kind of is, and Ben's company is forging ahead in the new frontier of de-extinction, starting with some of the most legendary animals from history. Expect to learn why Ben is bringing woolly mammoths back to life, how you give birth to an animal that died out thousands of years ago, where Ben gets the genetic material from, how bringing back woolly mammoths could fix climate change, whether artificial wombs will actually work, if we can make humans as strong as Neanderthals using their DNA, why we should bring back the dodo bird, and much more. Little bit of an update, I've been in the UK for nearly two full weeks now and have recorded a ton of episodes with guests that I've been looking forward to for a long time. So keep your eyes peeled for those as they will be coming out very soon. And this Monday, Stan Efferding, the world's strongest bodybuilder, joins me to talk all things muscle gain, fat loss, strength training. He is ridiculously knowledgeable and this episode was a lot of fun. So get ready for that one. All right, quick maths. The less that your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have, the more money that you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce the costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you are improving efficiency by bringing all your business processes into one platform. Over 37 thousand companies have already made the move so do the maths and see how you will profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com modern right now. That's netsuite.com modern. But now ladies and gentlemen please welcome Ben Lamb. Ben Lam, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Just as a headline here, you're trying to fix global warming by bringing woolly mammoths back to life amongst a number of other extinct creatures, right? <laughs> well, I, I don't think that one company can fix global warming. I, I think that we are at the you know brink of a major biodiversity crisis, which will lead to ecosystem collapse. And uh, restoring ecosystems like the Arctic tundra is something that you know, we're very focused on. So I hope that we are one of many people working on uh, biodiversity loss and combating climate change. But uh, I think it's maybe a little bold uh, to say that we're, we are solving it ourselves. I understand. Okay. So somebody comes up to you at a cocktail party and says, what do you do? What is your answer for your day-to-day -day work? So my, my general answer is I say I'm in technology. If they dive deeper, I'm like, well, I'm in biotechnology. If they dive deeper, I, I tell them that we're working to bring back extinct species and preserve all life on Earth. And then it, and then it kind of unravels from there. Right. Okay. Talk, talk to me about de-extinction then. Like what, what even is that? 
Yeah, so de-extinction is uh, not necessarily not necessarily a new concept. Other everything from books and movies and, and, and some other movements uh, through in the world have talked about the concept of de-extinction. And the way we view de-extinction is the de-extinction of core genes to build proxy species for uh, genetics that have been lost uh, to time, whether that was you know uh, due to solely you know climate change events. Or towards, uh, or, or do the fact of man's uh, implications, right? And so, uh, fundamentally, we are de-extincting the core genes that make all of these species those unique species. And so, recently, I was on a podcast where someone wanted to uh, debate semantics over the dodo, and they're and they like, "But your dodo is just going to be a silly-looking pigeon." And I hated to inform them that a dodo was a silly-looking pigeon. Dodos were pigeons. And so uh, the things that made it a different flightless pigeon were the genes that were de-extincting. And so it, it definitely brings out, you know, different uh, groups have different perspectives on, on the work that we're doing. But, but fundamentally, we're bringing back these lost species uh, to, to increase biodiversity. And then we're using all those technologies for conservation, which is pretty cool. Okay. Nuts and bolts. How the fuck do you bring a dead animal back to life? So you can't you can't clone a a a, a dead animal. Uh, you you don't have living cells. So what you have to do if, is you have to look for its closest living relative. So in the case of the mammoth, that's the Asian elephant. Mammoths are actually closer related to Asian elephants than Asian elephants are to African elephants, which is like like that blew my mind when, when I learned that because I. I I was also the first to the extinction when I was working on this. And what was interesting is you actually have to then go look at the DNA sequences. And so we actually had to assemble 54 mammoth genomes to build out kind of a reference genome that we can do all the comparative genomics to that of the Asian elephant. And they're about 99.6% the same genetically. And so then, and then in that difference of 0.4%, so a lot of genes, we then started to isolate what are the genes that really made a mammoth a mammoth? You know, the dome cranium, the curved tusk, the shaggy coat, this extra fat layer, how they produce oxygen at sub-freezing temperatures. And so we, we then had to spend a lot of time doing computational analysis to really understand that. And then we take and engineer those genes into that of an Asian elephant cell. Then we go through the cloning process, kind of like what they did with Dolly the sheep back in the 90s, only it's way more efficient now and it uses like lasers and stuff like that versus back in the 90s they were kind of just jamming stuff together which is weird uh but it kind of worked then now it actually really works because it's, it's way more precise uh and then you and then you actually implant that embryo into the closest living relative being the asian elephant uh from a surrogacy perspective where do you get the genomics of a animal that's not when did they when was the last woolly mammoth alive so, so the last ones actually were about 3500 uh, uh bc so they were up in wrangle island so they've been extinct for for quite some time uh, ironically though during the the building of the pyramids the last mammoths were still alive so it's kind of kind of weird it kind of blows people's minds a lot of people think that that mammoths um uh, we are, were like around the time of the dinosaurs. And so they're like, that's 65 million years old. It's not. And, and a lot of the DNA comes from the permafrost because animals will die up there. Uh, they will instantly start to freeze uh, layers of snow and ice, layers of snow and ice. And so there's tons of preserved species up in the permafrost. And so, you know, over the last 15 years, there's been incredible researchers like 
George Church and Lou Vidalin and Beth Shapiro and, and, and teams that we work these teams that we work with that have actually gone on expeditions to the permafrost to extract ancient DNA. So it's a little bit of science fiction and Jurassic Parky. It's a little bit of Indiana Jones. It's it's really interesting how it kind of all comes together uh, in, in de-extinction science today. So you have is it entire animals? Or is it is it bones of animal? What's preserved? Because yeah, know, so lots of shit can case, get preserved in in frost, right? Yeah, lots of shit can be preserved in frost. Um, but but it depends. So in the case of the uh, dodo bird, some of the some of it is just in uh, some of the DNA is actually just taken from the bone or the inner beak that they've actually drilled into. In the case of the thylacine, you know, which went extinct only in 1936, uh, hunters actually preserved one of the pups that they killed in uh, in alcohol uh, that ended up being in the museum. And so that was really well preserved. In the case of the permafrost with mammoths, you know, sometimes you get actual flesh. Sometimes you get actual, you know, uh, airs. Sometimes you get actual meat. Uh, it's very old and very disgusting. It's got lots of bacteria, so I wouldn't recommend eating it. Some people have, which is crazy. Uh, but a great place to get ancient DNA is, you, you mentioned it, is teeth. So some teeth do a great job of preserving it. And there's an inner ear bone called the petrous bone where you actually get great DNA from uh, species that are 10,000 years or older. What do you mean when you say great DNA? Is this a, a, a an area well, it's where it's... But it's not, it's not degraded over time? No, it's, it's, there's a high density of it? It's, it's, there's a high density of it. There's massive... There's, there is you know, things like heat and sun and radiation are all very, very bad for DNA. And so DNA starts to degrade the minutes outside of your body. So it is definitely degraded uh, DNA, but you can get more and more of it if it's in these well-preserved spots like teeth, like the petrous bone, or really well-frozen. And, we, and we've gotten all of it over the, over the times. And we're actually doing a project right now with the University of Alaska um, and, and this group, uh, this, this program that we put together called uh, Adopt a Mammoth, where we're actually taking teeth samples and we're giving them from the from universities uh, or, or from the museums in Alaska, giving them and loaning them to uh, school kids, showing them how you extract ancient DNA. And we're doing a whole both uh, radiocarbon dating and uh, population genomic study and sequencing all of these Alaskan mammoths. So it's a way to bring kids into it. It's a way to promote education you know, because these things is pretty fucking cool, right? Um, but then also, it's a, it's an incredible way uh, for us to get tons of data that we can use to understand populations of American mammoths, because a lot of the mammoths that we have are actually from Siberia, so the Russian mammoths. Oh, interesting. And you mentioned 53 uh, different uh, samples that was taken, and all of those are combined. Presumably, the goal here is if we have... Uh, you know, like 98% degradation of the genome, but we get tons of them, like 50 of them. Yeah. We can build that up over time and hopefully we get somewhere close to actually seeing a full sequence. And you'll, and you'll never get to fully 100%. I mean, you just won't, right? And so and some of this stuff happens in the regulatory regions, some of this happens in the non-regulatory regions. So you don't even really need as as much as as you may think. Uh, there's an area that I, I learned about when we started working on this uh, about kind of DNA coverage and the number of reads that the system does, because even these sequencers aren't perfect, right? So they're they're basically giving you a probabilist uh, a, a probability score of what that letter is on in, in, in terms of the the individual nucleotides in the in the in the DNA sequence. And so what's interesting is the more DNA you get 
then the, and the more reads you can do, the higher probability, right? Because if you can go to 20 to 50x coverage, that means that they've gone through the whole genome 20 to 50 times. So that means that, that there's a higher likelihood they're going to be correct, the machines to be correct in telling you what that specific letter is. And so anytime you get 25x up, sometimes as low as, you know, uh, teens up, you, you typically get enough of the genome that you can get pretty precise. Okay. So let's say that you now have compared the African elephant? Asian, Asian elephant. Asian elephant. You've compared the Asian elephant to these 53 AI-enhanced sequenced differences. There's this 0.4% or 0.6%, which is the difference. We've got this. Yeah. Now what? Now, like, what do you, what, what, what do you, what do you, you going to 3D print a mammoth? Like, what are we doing here? And just, and just guess. No, you actually do molecular and uh, functional assays and tests to understand what did those genes do. And what's interesting from both a convergent evolution and a general evolution perspective is you can start to see in different species how certain hair, for example, grows. So we, we know this about mammoths, which is really interesting. I always thought that mammoths just had long hair, right? They actually have five different types of hair. Uh, and so different genes and different pathways do that. And so one of the things that we're doing with, with Colossal, which we find interesting, is we're not only looking at what were the genes in, in the single gene and in, in, uh, additional genes that work together to produce that phenotype or physical attribute of that species, but we're also, we have an entire uh, genotype to, to phenotype team, our G2P team, that looks and leverages AI and some of these great techno newer, newer technologies to actually under try to understand how do things like size, how do things like hair, how does that work cross mammalian species, right? Even with different genes, like what are the different stages of development? And so we're doing a lot of work in, in kind of general genotype to phenotype around big core things like, you know, everything from size to cranial facial shapes, uh, you know, to fat patterns, to, to patterns of the actual kind of fur. And then as well as, you know, looking at things like like hair and fur length and in different regulatory regions like that. So it's really interesting because for from our, for our perspective, because we're working on multiple species, we have our individual teams that's trying to solve the individual uh, challenge of each species. And then we've got this cross-functional team that's trying to look for trends that can be applied to other mammals, right? And that can be really helpful for like, you know, drought-resistant cattle and in, in, in other species. Okay, moving forward, how do we make a mammoth? Yeah, so um, the, the way you do it is you go through that computational analysis. First, you get the DNA, then you assemble the DNA, then you actually uh, uh, do that computational analysis. And once you have your targeted gene list, you then go through the actual process of editing uh, Asian elephant cells, right? Because they're the closest living. So we did, you mentioned African elephants. We did a uh, work with the Vertebrae Genome Project to do a full reference genome of the African elephant more for conservation than really for our project. We did find some interesting differences between mammoths, Asian elephants, and African elephants that, that uh, we are starting to explore. Um, but once you do that, you go through the process of understanding what that gene list is. You then start making edits, and you start with looking for the edits that you think are going to be the highest impact. You then do a bunch of tests to make sure that those edits actually took. Uh, and then once you get to a point that you feel like you've got a cell with the edits that you feel comfortable with, you do sequencing just like we did at the beginning on those cells to make sure that the edits are there and they didn't create what's called off-target effects, meaning things that you didn't mean to break in the genome. Uh, and so once you feel like you're comfortable there, you then go into a, use a process called somatic cell nuclear transfer or cloning. And that's where we take the nucleus uh, of a somatic cell 
and we put it into that of a germ cell. Or what's what's, what's cell. a somatic cell for the people that don't know? So, so, so somatic cells are basically all the cells in your body that are or in an animal's body that are not sperm and eggs. So those are, those are like skin cells, different types of tissue cells. So we take the nucleus or that brain out of a somatic cell and we put it into that of a germ cell or an egg cell. And then effectively you've got, you know, the basis of an embryo. You then use a process of slight electrification and, and some, some other media, and then it starts to divide. And once you get to the right stage of, of division, you then implant that into a, a surrogate. In the case of the woolly mammoth, that's the Asian elephant. Um, so, so that's how it works in mammals. How it works uh, in, in birds is, is, is slightly uh, different. Um, it, it, it's a little bit different of a process, but it's a much easier gestation process. So uh, if that's interesting for dodos, I could talk about that. Or yeah, yeah, I want to know how a, I, I, I want to know how a bird. So for, birds are even like what's interesting to me about birds is the gestational side because we're not going through uh, the somatic cell nuclear transfer or that cloning step in birds. Uh, birds are harder on the front end, but they're so much easier currently on the back end, right? Because we don't have to work. We don't have to go work on the surrogacy side. You don't have to do the embryo transfer. You don't have to do uh, the nucleus transfer. So what's great about birds is you, you, while we can't clone birds currently in the world, meaning that we can't find the, the uh, nucleus at the right time of development to move it. So you can't clone birds yet. Maybe one day you can, there's debate on whether it's possible, but you know, everything was impossible until it's not right. And so, um, but what's interesting is what we are doing is, is we're actually using chickens as our host. And so this blew my mind, kind of like how close mammoths and, and Asian elephants were. When you take, if you can cultivate what's called primordial germ cells, so the precursors to egg and sperm, right? And then you edit those, you can then use that and build a, an, an edited chicken with these edited primordial germ cells. So th this is where it gets crazy. Uh, I mean, at least for me, being in de de extinction, um, you can then have edited primordial germ cells, chicken A, and edited primordial germ cell, chicken B. Those chickens can fall in love, and depending on your worldviews, they get married or whatever, and then uh, they have a baby and they have an egg. When that egg hatches, it is based on what you put into the primordial germ cells. So they've done this and created transgenic, uh, transgenic ducks, where they they put edited duck cells. In, uh, PGCs, primordial germ cells, in a chicken one. They've done it in chicken two. Uh, those chickens grow up. Those chickens fall in love. They get married, whatever. They have a, they have a baby, uh, an egg. The egg hatches, and it's a duck. And so what's amazing is that chickens uh, will actually be the surrogates for our first dodos, which, as we talked about briefly early, are pigeons. So um, <laughs> our stinking our, our, our <laughs> Dude. Yeah, so it's, it's an interesting it's an interesting world, and, and now we're even exploring. I don't know if it's possible, but I'm happy to share with you. We are ex exploring bird cloning, right? Because we were told this is how you have to do it using these uh, using these types of primordial germ cells. So that was the process that we followed. Uh, but then, you know, we we're like, but why doesn't bird cloning work? And we got lots of feedback. They're like, huh, maybe we'll try that. So we are working on bird cloning. Not sure if it's going to work, uh, but if not, we'll go down this. Uh, PGC route that seems uh, pretty plausible. Okay, so getting back to the mammoth, there's an yeah. unclosed there's an unclosed loop about that one. We have this Asian elephant, this unsuspecting mother Asian elephant, who is going to give birth to what? What will what will ultimately come out of this 
elephant? Yeah, so so it's a great question. Uh, it, will, it will be our kind of mammoth 1.0s, right? So we take, it's an Asian elephant that has been edited. So I come from software, so I think of things like software. So our 1.0s will produce all the core phenotypes that we know and love in a woolly mammoth. So we're de-extincting all the core hair genes, the cranial facial shape, that don't cranium, uh, the tusk uh, uh, morphology in terms of the, the curved tusks. Uh, as well as like shorter tails, smaller ears. And then there's some stuff that's kind of under the hood, like how, you know, how the the uh, mammoths are more cold tolerant with certain fat layers, with the ability for uh, their nerve endings not to fry at sub-freezing temperatures, the ability to produce hemoglobin and oxygen. You know, laser eyes. Blood. Yeah, yeah. There are no laser eyes, but that is a, that's a, that's a uh, I, we got asked if we could make a thylacine with laser eyes. Um, so we, we get a lot of interesting requests, believe it or not. Right. So I, is it accurate to say that it's a mammoth or is it accurate to say that it's an entirely new species? It's, it's really not. Uh, so, so the IUCN and, and the Species Survival Commission, which is kind of like the UN species, which is amazing. We work very closely with them, defines a new species as something that gave rise in nature. So it's not really a new species, uh, at least how it's how. It's but it's defined. also not a mammoth. Right, because yeah, it doesn't it, have- I mean, it, it has all the core. And so, so this this goes in. I, I mentioned this earlier, right? You know, whether you think a, a dodo is a silly looking pigeon or a mammoth is is an elephant, a mammoth was an elephant. Like that's just what they were. They're pachyderms. That that that's what they were. And so, I don't know. Like my dogs are mutts, right? And I would argue that most species are hybrids, and that's hybridization uh, gives rise to newer species, right? And so. You know, if some people aren't happy unless we clone a hundred percent of a mammoth, then then I would argue that you know it's a cold adjusted, uh, genetically modified elephant with extinct mammoth alleles from a series of biodiversity gaps of you know three to five or ten thousand years, right? So, so much less on, sexy as a name. Yeah, I mean, if that's what you want to call it, that's what you want to call it. But I mean, for you and me, or at least for me, when I see it, and well. If we are successful, you know, it has all the core phenotypes and it's cold adapted. If we de-extincted the core genes that made a mammoth a mammoth, then then to me that's a mammoth, right? You know, our 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 goal is not to create. Uh, there, there's a lot of infrastructure uh, in the genome that's just it, it doesn't produce uh, any real effects. So I um, mean, we could add thousands of thou upon thousands of of edits to our our mammoths that don't have any tr- you know true meaningful effect, but from a purist perspective, you someone yeah. could say, oh, well, that's closer to a mammoth. Um, right. So, so yeah, okay. you know that, that that's at least how we view it. Functionally, it's a mammoth, right? So it's a functional mammoth. It's a mammoth. Looks like a mammoth. Yeah. It drives like a mammoth. Yeah. Right. Yeah, at least that's. That's how we how we think about it. We there is a small percentage of folks that disagree with us, but you know, oh, you mean the mammoth a, purists out there? If the mammoth purists want to go a step further, they can, <laughs> and, and and we, we and we welcome them too. Okay, uh, what about like gestation and stuff? Because so ge- I, I, there's got to be differences and 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 yeah. into utero bullshit. <laughs> there's there's definitely intrauterine bullshit. Um, the uh, uh, so it's about 22 months of gestation. So it's a very long uh, gestational cycle, right? Uh, which you know I, I come I, I try to think of things from a systems design perspective, right? And so for me, 
that's one of the reasons why I love the thylacine. So if I can dumb down the process, what's the, what's the thylacine? Tasmanian tiger. It's a it's a large car. It was the largest carnivorous marsupial. Wow. Yeah, it's all. It kind of looks like a wolf from a. It's not genetically related to a wolf, but it, but from a convergent evolution perspective, meaning that in the isolated po- population, it kind of looks like a wolf. Like if you look at a thylacine and a wolf skull, I'd say ninety nine out of a hundred times, people would say, "Oh, the, the saying." There's only one small difference uh, in the inside. Uh, but what's really interesting is that through convergent evolution, it almost looks like a wolf. But but going back to your question. Uh, from a gestational perspective, you've got 22 months with the mammoth. With the thylacine, you have 13 and a half days. Now, so that that's the end of the process. The beginning of the process is computational biology, right? Like assembling the reference genome. With the mammoth, we had 54 mammoth genomes. You have to do a lot of work. To your point, it's very degraded. You have to do so much work on it. On the thylacine, we got over a 92% complete read on the first read, right? So that's easier. But then in the middle, on the editing, Lots of more edits that are required in the thylacine than in the mammoth. So it's it's like hard, easier, hard. Uh, and then this one was easy, harder, easy. So what's interesting from a systems perspective looking at this is you can look at the entire kind of like system in mammalian de-extinction and build a system that kind of has to work for both. And so that's where we're spending a, a lot of time. I will say that it is a lot easier to just say the, the thylacine than the mammoth. <laughs> Yeah, I guess that one Asian elephant is looked at very, very carefully for 22 months. It's like, do not let it out of your sight. If it goes missing, you're, you're in trouble. All right, so what, um, what, about, what could go wrong during this, this process? Are there any... Well, any, anything. I mean, there's a, I mean, anytime you're doing something that's hard from a science perspective, things could go wrong, right? Like you, you could not fully get all of the right edits made you could not only that you, i mean we we can test for you know whether we made them right but do all of the edits produce the phenotypes or or core phys- physical attributes that we're looking for right um how does the somatic cell transfer process work in elephant versus bovine versus pig versus dog versus mm. mouse right and so you, there, there's still nuances to that right and then gestationally you know the the, the thing that's really interesting is that I don't think there's been an, a, this whole concept of xenotransfer, right? Of like, or xenotransplantation of taking something from one species to another, you know, sounds like crazy, but we see it all the time. People get xenotransplantation pieces of pigs in their hearts and go live normal lives, right? We also see that, um, you know, uh, we also see that, that species like a mammoth, which is closely related to an Asian elephant, uh, than it is to a than an Asian elephant is to an African elephant. African elephants and Asian elephants can actually interbreed and produce viable offspring. And so these are two genetically distant species that are further apart than these two. And remember, to your point earlier, we're not making exactly this; we're making somewhere in between, right? So we're even closer to an Asian elephant. So we believe there's a high degree of confidence uh, in that interspecies uh, uh, transfer and in that in that surrogacy, um, but. People ask me all the time, will the mammoth be the first species? Due to the 22-month gestation, I, I, I think it's highly likely there would be another species. Oh, it's going to get pipped before. at the... It's going to start off on the race first, and it's going to end up coming in last. It's got 22 months of gestation. I mean, that's just... That's that's hard to... You know, it takes there, time there to that, grow a mammoth. Yeah, there, there are people... There's other species that could do a victory lap before. <laughs> yeah, you've got an entire army of those things that look like wolves. Uh, all right. 
what else? Actually, here's a question. So it seems to me, with my extensive knowledge of how genomic sequencing works, that the main limiting factor is the quality of the DNA that you can get from whatever the sample is of the animal. Is that right? I think that that's overcome. I, I don't think that's that's the, the limited thing. I think that, that the... I'll get to limiting. I think that what you just said is overcome with more samples, right? And so we've got incredible partners like Louvadolin in Stockholm. It's, you know, Louvadolin's arguably one of the most knowledgeable people in the world of the genes that make a mammoth a mammoth. And he's constantly just finding and sequencing more mammoths. So I think that we can probabilistically get through what you just suggested. Um, I think that the biggest issue, and I think they're different for species, but, you know, it's just editing, right? What's What's amazing is that we have a lot of incredible editing technologies. People kind of just clump all genome editing as one thing, but there's a lot of different technologies. There's editing individual letters in kind of that twisted ladder, right? Each one of those rungs, you can edit individual ones. You can knock out pieces of it. Uh, you can edit multiple things at the same time all over the genome. That's called multiplex editing. That's where we are spending a lot of time and we're trying to be the most innovative company in the world, being able to edit a lot of the parts of the genome at one time. So you don't have to be so precise. You can edit that same level of precision all over. And we've had, you know, over 90% uh, efficacy already proven internally, which is amazing uh, for our edits. And we're trying to stack those. And then you come to, to DNA synthesis, where it's like to your, if you can get to your point earlier, if you can get that, that, that right amount of, you know, letters in the right order and you have a high degree of, con, uh, of confidence in it, you can synthesize a big piece of that and then just swap it in. So in areas where there's lots of edits, instead of doing lots of edits, you know, either using kind of some of these uh, individual editing tools or even editing multiplex, or even synthesizing pieces, full pieces of DNA and swapping it in because that may have, you know, 20 different edits that we didn't have to make because we really only had to synthesize it and then swap in one. So, so I think that, that depending on how far we want to push editing, I think that in, in the, the rate at which editing, um, the rate at which editing technologies progress will probably be the limiting factor, not on our success, but on the number of edits that can be made. When it comes to other animals, if we were to try and get more exotic, the, I mean, the Jurassic Park memes write themselves with this, yeah, we, right? Yeah, we, we've, we've heard that before. Yeah, yeah. It, it doesn't surprise me. Um, with those, what's the limiting factor there? Why is it the case that you, maybe you can, but why is it the, why is it the case that you can't do something which is a little bit more exotic? Um, well, I mean, I, I would argue that no one, to my knowledge, <laughs> has seen a mammoth, so it's pretty exotic. <laughs> more exotic, you know, older, older. Let's call, oh, not, not call it more exotic. I'm not going to make a value judgment on your mammoth. Older. Yeah, so, um, I mean, Castiles is pretty exotic. Um, Mauritius is a very exotic place. It's beautiful with dodos. Um, so, uh, you know, rate limiting, you know, you can't, you know, harvest DNA from bone. You know, Kenneth Lacavara, who's incredible, he's one of the top paleontologists in the world, he just he discovered Dreadnoughtus. He's also one of the most interesting people in the world, uh, the largest dinosaur ever, Dreadnoughtus. Uh, he's actually been able to demineralize bones, uh, dinosaur bones, and get pieces of amino acids, right? But amino acids and even some proteins and some collagens, but th that does not, that's not a big chunk of DNA, right? So uh, we get the amber question, we get the dino DNA question. So I guess there is technically dinosaur collagen and dinosaur 
uh, amino acids and maybe some proteins here and there. But that is so, so the, the pieces of confetti, you're now making pieces of confetti, of pieces of DNA confetti, of confetti to try to right. do it. So, A so, dinosaur, uh, it does not maketh. It, it, it does not. And so, so right now we can go back about a, a million years. Uh, I haven't seen the latest in terms of what, what's been sequenced, but I know we've been able to sequence 700,000 to, to a million years and, and get viable DNA. But at some point, you know, and so, so that, that there's a lot of exotic stuff between then and now. Um, uh, also, you know, uh, cold, uh, dry environments are great for DNA. Um, you know, hot. A lot of people love to talk about the Librea tar pits. We get a lot of questions about the Librea tar pits, and uh, you know, hot, acid-filled places are not great for DNA. Um, there's been some really cool animals that have gone extinct in warm, wet, and climates that you know aren't great for DNA. Uh, so you can't make those. We, we a big fan favorite is the giant sloth. People would there. There used to be a giant sloth that was the size of a tree a giant ground sloth that would literally, and there's like some, I've read some stories about how they loved avocados and how they propagated avocados. I don't know if there's any truth to that, but it's one of the recent things I've read about. Um, so, so there are lots of kind of uh, different species that, you know, are interesting. I think that a lot of the Pleistocene species, late Pleistocene species make a lot of sense because there is great preserve, or there is as, as great as preservation as you could probably get, uh, because you know early early humans weren't sticking them in you know sub-freezing temperature freezers at the time. Right. Okay. What else from the last million years? If you were to have a, a hit list, a top of the pops, aside from your mammoth and your dodo. What else? What else is in there for? I would like to bring this back. Well, I mean, I think you have to have a, a reason, you know, why. Um, no, one of no, no, species- no, no, Ben. This is we are completely liberated from resources, okay. ethics, okay, okay. or a service of humanity. What do you want to bring back? I think it's hard to to fully liberate ourselves from service of humanity or or ethics. There, there's a couple species that I find very interesting. Um, I think the great auk is really interesting. It was like the American penguin. It's super cool. I think that it served a purpose. Um, I think that there is a whale size uh, manatee or dugong called uh, the stellar sea cow. We we can't bring it back. I, we actually have DNA for it, but there's nothing to gestate it. It's just too, too big unless we get extra development devices to work, uh, which which we do have a 17 person team working on. Um, uh, you know, a fan favorite is uh, saber tooth cat, uh, which there were there were there were several, but there were two that were um, pretty prominent. One being homotherium, and one being spilodon. Spilodon had the bigger tusk that you know the big canines that we think of. Um, so I, I think all of those are pretty interesting candidates. Uh, you know, I don't we can't do the stellar sea cow, but I think that'd be incredible to see like a you know blue whale size you know, manatee, like you'd be like, what? and apparently they were like incredibly helpful to the kelp forest of the Pacific Northwest. And so, um, there are, there are also big carbon sinks like, like elephants. So, um, those are all really cool, uh, species. We're not working on any of them currently. <laughs> um, all right. So what's uh, aside cool. from, aside from the mammoth, uh, the mammoth being a very useful one. And I want to get onto why it's particularly useful. And aside from these other ones that are like the sexy ones, um, 
What else would you, you just consider don't to think be... a mammoth is sexy? I think a mammoth is pretty sexy. Look, I'm not. I'm not a, a hairy. Uh, hair, hair, that much hair is too much for me. Um, what else is particularly useful from the last one million years? I, I, like I said, we have these very specific use cases yeah, for certain animals. So, so I'll, I'll hit the use cases of of, of the non the the two non mammoth species, and then and then kind of I guess partly then the other species. But so specifically with the dodo, bringing back the dodo doesn't like fix the ecosystem of Mauritius. But bringing back the dodo, which is a symbol of of, of man caused uh, extinction, will force us and the Mauritian government, who we're working very closely with, on uh, removing the invasive species that actually led to the dodo's extinction. So a lot of people love to just say that dodos were dumb and uh, people just ate them. Uh, the, the, you know, the, there's actually not as much data suggesting that as that because they were a ground dwelling species of flightless bird and they laid their eggs on the ground one time a year, long, longer gestation cycles. Uh, when you bring in, you know, invasive species like pigs and rats and other things, they eat the stuff that's on the ground because they can't climb trees, right? Uh, for the most part. And so, um, and so the process of bringing back the dodo in collaboration with you know local people and governments and indigenous people groups and whatnot, uh, we'll, we'll, if we do want to successfully rewild them in Mauritius uh, and in the neighboring islands, then we actually have to do a process of ecosystem restoration. So it's forcing us to undo some of the you know, sins of the past of uh, in- introducing these invasive species, right? So, so the, a lot of times people ask us about the dodo. It doesn't really solve a pure ecological impact besides forcing us to undo that, which also could help other species that are native to, to, to those islands. Um, in the case of the thylacine or Tasmanian tiger, some people also call it Tasmanian wolf, but more commonly Tasmanian tiger, um, you know, it was the largest apex predator in Tasmania and lower Australia. And what, what people don't realize is people just think, oh, predators, easy life, top of the food chain. It's like, no, those are actually the big herbivores. Those have easier lives, you know, because they are just eating grass. There's a lot of energy expenditure that happens in carnivores to go make a kill, right? And so if you're a carnivore and you're, and, and you're, or if you're an animal carnivore, I should say, and you're out in the field and you have to go actually like make a kill versus just get it from your local whole, whole foods, uh, and you actually have to go do the work, you're going to be very strategic you're going to expend that energy, uh, that, that energy expenditure very wisely. You're going to look for either the small, old, weak, or sick animals to to pick them off. And so, what people don't realize is that that a lot of these carnivores had tremendous help in 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 in, in kind of securing the balance of the ecosystem. Not just because they're thinning herds, but because they're also eating a lot of the stuff that that you know and killing off the weak, the young, or the sick. And so. One of the animals that the Tasmanian tigers probably preyed on was the Tasmanian devil. It was smaller in the, in, in, in the stack. And now, due to this whole facial tumor disease, and they don't have any natural predators anymore, they are actually spreading this terrible facial tumor uh, cancer to each other when they eat. I, I've been with Tasmanian devils in the wild, and um, it's, uh, it's, it's very interesting. They're very aggressive. And, um, and so when they're doing that, they're fighting each other, clawing each other and whatnot. And they they actually get pretty beat up during that kind of feeding frenzy process. And they actually pass that disease. Well, 
if thylacines were around or, or, or a larger um, animal that preyed on them, they would most likely thin out a lot of those uh, animals that can't walk very well or see very well due to the facial disease, right? So then there's less that can actually produce that. So that whole effect is called tropic downgrading when you, when you, uh, have a predator that actually can remove, uh, that from the wild. And, and that helps balance the ecosystem, right? And so, you know, uh, Dr. Andrew Pass, who's one of our partners on the thylacine rewilding restoration or rewilding project has been very, uh, adamant on, on, uh, their demise has led to the potential demise of the devils, which is, which is terrible. Um, so, so those are, those are the non mammoth species impacts. Yes. That okay. We're, we're so why, why the, like the mammoth is kind of a, it holds a particularly good cultural position. And the dodo, I really like that thing about the dodo that it's not about what it does functionally, but what it does symbolically that look mm-hmm. guys, we, we went through all of this effort to bring this thing back because of how, Topsy turby, the ecology of this particular location went. You got to fix this. I, I think that's it's just yeah. a really, really smart way of playing with human psychology. The mammoth also kind of is s- symbolic in some regards. I, th- I don't know if we actually do know why it went extinct. Was it hunted there, to extinction? Was so, it whatever, whatever? There, yeah, there's a lot of different. It depends on who you ask, right? Like there's there are scientific peer reviewed papers that say early man uh, uh, hunted them to extinction. There's other papers that show in, in other research that shows that, you know, it was it was uh, climate in, in the evolving climate that pushed them further north. And then there's genetic bottleneck in Wrangell Island. The, the last man has died of, of uh, inbreeding. Um, but most likely what, what most people don't realize. And, and, and I, so I think there I think the answer is somewhere in between, because um, I think there's data. I mean, we have, you know, proof of early man hunting mammoths. We, we have, you know, there's there's spear marks and stuff like that in some mammoths. Uh, there's actually mammoth uh, tools that have been used, right? And so, so I do think that that were that were designed and built at that time. I think more than likely, you know, with with elephants specifically, you have 22 months gestation. Then you have about six years to get to the point that they are truly adult elements, uh, elephants. And then there's about a 12 to 13 year sexual maturity process. So if you want to kill elephants, you actually don't have to like, eradicate elephants. You don't have to eradicate all of them. You just have to eradicate enough of them because of that cycle. You yeah. know, uh, you know whether it's the environment or predators, someone will thin them off over time to, to get to extinction. Re- from a reproduction perspective and from a yeah. fertility perspective, elephants generally are a fragile creature. Long gestation, long time as a relatively useless, unprotected infant, still relatively useless sexually, Finally, we can do it. You know, it's just there's a lot of opportunity yeah. to be dead in that. Yeah, before you get to the point to, to to pass on your genes. One thing about elephants, though, and and we aren't we, we are working on this as it relates to mammoth the extinction. We're not we're not looking at it from a cancer perspective. But one of the things that's interesting about uh, elephants, and I believe also blue whales, is they have an overexpression of of, of this protein called p fifty three. You, you and I and mice, we have about one expression of it. Uh, they have seven. And what's interesting is if you look at elephants for both body weight and uh, both both body weight and size uh, and, 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 and longevity of life, they get cancer a fraction of what they sh- quote unquote should based on like cancer and mutation curves of most mammals. And it is believed that a lot of that is due to P53, right? Um, and it's just something that's not as well studied as it probably should be because most people work in mice 
and then pig. So one of the things that's interesting about what we're doing with Colossal outside of the extinction or species preservation uh, efforts, which I, I'd love to talk to at, at some point if, if, it's, if, it's, if it's an option, but uh, but finding because we are working in so many non-model organisms, we're starting to see really interesting things and learning a lot about species that there's just not been enough research into, at least at the genetic level. And so I'm not saying that P53 or elephants have the cure to cancer, but they may. And so we are working like for us to do our editing. Think about that for us. For us to create what's called induced pluripotent stem cells, the most naive state of stem cells that then you can reprogram into any type of tissue, uh, which is very helpful for us, right, with what we're trying to do. Um, you know, we've achieved that in our marsupial species, the fat tail dunar, that, that we're, that's our model or so for, for thylacine. But in, in the case of the mammoth and uh, the Asian elephants, we're very, very close. We haven't got there quite yet. We, we've gotten to iPSCs, but we want to get to further differentiation of them so that we can really characterize them as as the most purest form of iPSCs. It's kind of like a grading scale. Um, and we've achieved that kind of first step and now we're kind of progressing. But we actually had to isolate and build a construct around P53 and learn how to regulate it because think about what do mutations look like? They look like cancer, right? And so when you're introducing mutations into the genome, it looks like it looks like a form of cancer. So, so we're learning a lot about uh, about you know how cellular regulation works around p53, which is really really fascinating. One of our advisors, uh, uh, Fritz uh, Volrath, is is one of the top p53 researchers and has been very helpful to us. But um, but fundamentally, uh, that's an area where some of these species, while not massively reproductive viable, as you said, as you as you so stated, uh, could be really helpful if we understand more about their genetics. Okay, so dodo bird, symbolic, useful, yeah. not being gone for that long. Uh, Tasmanian tiger would be good to stop the Tasmanian devils from getting this face tumor. Also symbolic because also symbolic. They are they're only extinct because, in, because the, the Australian government put a bounty on their heads and paid people to eradicate them. So also very symbolic. 100% okay. man caused the extinction, extinction. That all of that being said, woolly mammoths functionally do some cool stuff. What cool yes. stuff do they do? How do they help the planet? Yeah, so so may I, so there there's a group called Pleistocene Park that George has been working with uh, for the last 10 years in northern Siberia. And what they found, and they've done this in I think they published in eight different peer-reviewed papers that if you can build if you can do two things, if you can remove these the the uh, these carnivorous trees, this taiga forest uh, that is uh, not the best carbon sink. They're also very dark bark. Uh, they almost are like heat lightning rods that have permeate that permeate the heat down uh, into the ground. If you remove those, and if you get to the right level of of cold tolerant dense uh, uh, cold tolerant dense species, the right level of density, you can actually lower ground temperatures by up to eight degrees. Now, why, and I'll, and I'll talk about that here in a second, but why is that important? We always talk about this 1.5 degree tipping point. Well, there's more carbon and more methane, and methane's about 30 times worse in the atmosphere. I think that's what kind of uh, Venus's atmosphere is predominantly made of. Um, there's more carbon and more methane stored in the permafrost, in that in that tundra area, than anywhere else on the planet. It's more than double what's been released in the atmosphere. It's over a trillion metric tons of carbon in methane, which is which is terrible. It's more than even in the Amazon rainforest, right? Because the Amazon and the rainforest have a carbon oxygen cycle that, that just repeats, not in the Arctic. It freezes, something dies, 
freezes, dies, freezes, and just piles up, right? So there's this all this condensed biomass there, and you know if it really if it releases, it could be pretty bad. I was actually with the Army Corps of Engineers up there uh, outside of uh, Fairbanks in the permafrost research tunnels, and it, it, it's just it's 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 absolutely amazing, but also kind of terrifying if it does melt. And so what's interesting is there's been studies shown about how effective elephants are specifically forest elephants in Africa are doing a couple of things. They actually make the ground temperatures cooler because they pack the ground and they let the wind actually come down and, and hit the ground at, at, uh, during the cooler months. So it actually makes the, the ground cooler, number one. Number two, elephants love knocking down trees. And I know that sounds like, we, but I thought trees were good. Does this colossal have a war on trees? We do not have a war on trees. Uh, we just don't love the non-efficient carnivorous dark bark trees in the Arctic that are not, that aren't, aren't helpful. Uh, the, the grasslands or the Arctic grasslands of that time uh, were about two to three times more efficient at what's called the albedo effect at, at light reflection. So anything that wasn't absorbed for, for those absorbed in those gra grasses is not only uh, uh, ref is reflected back to space about two to three times more efficient than the trees. And as well as they're about six times more efficient at storing carbon down into their uh, root structures. And so there's been a lot of really great modeling done that if you could return the Arctic back to a more biodiverse with these like Pleistocene creatures uh, uh, area where you have these natural herding animals during the winter, they'll pack the snow down deeper or, or, or pack the snow down so that the winter months can actually like lower the temperatures. And we've seen that work in Siberia already. Mammoths, like elephants, are natural they love knocking down trees, right? So then you don't have to use uh, tractors and other uh, equipment like they're doing in Siberia to knock down those trees. And then just building up that biodiversity in that area will lead to a better oxygen nitrogen cycle so that they will, you know, with their defecation and whatnot, they'll plant more uh, of the of the grasslands that are more efficient in the summer months, right? So, so it's really interesting when you put the whole puzzles together outside of mammoths, it's about eight degrees lower which is pretty important when we're looking at probably surpassing that 1.5 degrees that we talked about in the, in the in the Paris Agreement, right? It's pretty important to keep all that that trapped. And and the the model is is that mammoths can be in a massive accelerant and can push those numbers even higher. Little hairy farmers, big hairy farmers, yeah. walking yeah. all over the place. So I yeah. I've volunteered yeah. when I went to Thailand seven years ago. I volunteered at a conservation center that was reclaiming land from monocrop monoculture stuff i want to say soybeans maybe do they do kind of aggressive I, I yeah. feel like. anyway it was somewhere that had been just one thing and uh, this guy that had bought tons and tons of hectares of land had also bought two elephants he'd saved two elephants that had been carrying mother and daughter that had been carrying tourists up hills one of those like classic like mistreated animal stories yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then brought them in and i remember asking at the time i was like why would like is the is it just for fun or whatever and they were like oh no the elephants they keep the trees to a certain level they help to rotate the crops and the different uh, ensure that manure from one side goes to another side and then there's fertilizer and they do all this other stuff as well and uh yeah dude i i realized that elephants are basically nature's farmers in a way yeah you're you're 100 spot on and there was a study that came out that uh, we can get and just send to you if you find it interesting to read i, I think you probably will where I, I think that they defined the in just forest elephants in africa and asia uh uh 
preserve the equivalent of half a trillion dollars of carbon credits. Like, that's amazing. Um, and so people breed are just more elephants. Breed yes, more yeah. elephants. Yeah, and we want to we we, we do that, right? Like that's part of our goals. How do you have you considered? I know that you haven't got one yet. What is the game plan upon right? We can now produce elephants or we can produce mammoths at the pace of about one every 22 months. Uh, and then we can like scale it. Yeah. What do you do? Fly them in? Fly them yeah, in on a, on a big, a big, a big like one yeah. of those C 130 yeah, planes? C 130, yeah. No, no. Um, we work closely with the US government, but not, I don't know if they'll give us C 130s for elephant transports. Um, so, so the idea is uh, kind of twofold. One, l- l- let me talk about scaling briefly and then we'll talk about rewilding. So, on the scaling function, you know, uh, to your point, breeding elephants is a long, tedious process, right? You're not going to make thousands of mammoths the old-fashioned way it's just going to take a long time right but fundamentally so we have a group and in and, and once again what, what's so weird about my day-to-day life today is is that de-extinction no longer seems like science fiction to me because i'm so close to it right it's like i see where i see a lot more than the world sees um and we try to talk about everything we're doing as much as we can um but i see i see how close some things are and stuff how far other things are and so de-extinction to me doesn't seem like science fiction anymore. Uh, the science fiction part of my job is we have an extra development or artificial womb team uh, that we're really, you know, investing heavily in. And, and I do think that there's no major science gates there. It's just engineering challenges, right? You have to know enough about the species. You have to build the right environment. You have to ensure that you have the right placental interface for the placenta. Um, but, but you can really build out a extra development and that's where you can get scale right and this is before we talk about where do you how do you put them back but you know our long-term goal is to be able to produce many many mammoths in you know a facility right like where you're not even using surrogates and and i think that interestingly enough some of the work they were doing for conservation is a game changer as we're building this de-extinction toolkit but then separately i think this artificial womb if we are to be successful in it it will have more an impact even than, than all this other work we're doing on species preservation. Because if you could think about it, if you could grow, you know, we talk about the northern white rhinos, and there's only two left, they're functionally extinct because there's only two females. But if you could grow 100 northern white rhinos with different engineered in genetic diversity and then work with free wilding teams to put them back into the wild, I mean, you change conservation forever, right? And so, so I do think there's some things that, that we're working on that are more science fiction, uh, but if we are successful, have kind of the scale functions that you're talking about. But long term, it's to actually have uh, those breeding centers uh, in the Arctic, in Alaska, in, in our allied nations, in, in the Arctic Circle, and, and actually, you know, do that work there, and then work to rewild them there. And you then can do that in, in heated barns. Slap them, slap them on the ass. Yeah, and send them out into the world. Just give them a give them a treat and and hope for the best. Oh, there you go. Can mammoths? produced by you are you just allowed to let them have sex and and proliferate and then do you get mammoths out the other side or does something weird happen you do get uh mammoths out the other side and there, there's actually uh data to suggest that mammoths and asian elephants did interbreed which is interesting um uh but, but separate conversation the um uh so we work very closely with every nation. Every state has slightly different rules. We work very closely with the U.S. government. We're working with the Australian government. We're working with the Mauritian government. And, uh, and then we're working with a couple of state governments. The U.S. government's actually an investor in, 
in one of the groups is an investor at Colossal. Um, and so for us, uh, you know, it's really important to be inclusive, not when we get mammoths and slap them on the butt and, and, and hope for the best. It, it's important to do it now, right? So we spend a lot of time with the government. We spend a lot of time with different regulatory agencies. We spend a lot of time with indigenous people groups, private landowners. Um, and, and that's important, right? Because it's not just about government regulation and support, like the EPA and, and, and other equivalents, but you also have indigenous people groups, you have private landowners. So we've been we've taken the, the uh, stance that the rewilding process is going to be as long as the engineering process. Uh, so why don't we start that now? And so just because we, we don't want approval, we want true collaboration. And, and so that's, that's one thing that I think that we've done really right. Um, we have a, a team that, that works with, with these governments and these indigenous people groups and, and held public town hall forums that have conversations with local, with the local public, uh, both from an education and a, a feedback perspective. You know, you can, you can actually learn a lot from a critic if you listen. Um, and so I think, I think we've done a good job of taking a wide range of feedback that we've been given, um, you know, more so on the critical side, less so on the please make a dinosaur side. Understood. Rolling the clock forward, the next question evidently is, what does this mean for humans? Does this mean that we can change our DNA to survive spaceflight? Can we give us the strength of Neanderthals? Can we <laughs> Can we do, do, I know you work with Chris Mason. He had that thought experiment in his book about if you were able to make humans uh, do photosynthesis and you'd only need three tennis fields worth of skin and you'd be able to survive just on the sun like some yeah, yeah, crazy yeah. butterfly of space. Yeah, play, uh, yeah, plants are the original solar power. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, um, okay, yeah, so yeah, we, ro roll the clock forward for Chris me. Mason's what can we do for humans? Yeah. So, so I think so. So, just to be transparent, we are not working in humans. Um, we are working in mammals. I think a lot of the technologies that we're developing will have applications uh, to to humans. In the case that that occurs, we spin that out as a technology company. We did that last year with Form Bio, our first uh, AI-based computational biology platform. But I think as we get better at computational biology and as we get better at editing. Uh, I think the sky's the limit, right? And that's where you need to spend a lot of time on the ethics side of it. So, um, you know, uh, I, I do believe that from a technology perspective, you know, it's not possible or it's not allowed to do germline editing. So the editing that we are doing in currently with, with, uh, man, with it, it Colossal, you can't do that in humans. So it's not allowed. Um, but I do think that as uh, that changes, because I do think that'll be a societal change over time with more and more strict policies and, and, and not, not probably strict, but better regulation around gene editing, because right now it's like, sounds scary. We shouldn't, we should only do it in these limited cases, but, but it's incredible. So, so let me give you, let me give you a real world example today, and then I'll tell you about tomorrow. So uh, they're, they're, and I'm probably going to screw it up because I'm not a biologist, but uh, they found that like, I, I, you know, I don't know what your cholesterol is, right? But um, my, my cholesterol is pretty great. But part of it is it's because I've, I've actually, I actually use a drug that limit that, that, that stops and blocks one of the genes in my body called PKS9. And so what's interesting is there's the, these PKS9 inhibitors, um, uh, PCKS9 inhibitors that, um, that literally block how your body produces LDL. So some people genetically, even if you're vegan, do everything right, run a thousand miles a day, you will produce too much LDL, right? It will build up in your system. And um, 
this lowers it by, you know, 40 to 70%. It's incredible. And it's not where I'm not, I've not edited my genome, but I take a drug that uh, blocks that. So what about a world where we can edit out that gene where no one, you know, like, like I, I believe that diabetes and heart disease right now are a hundred percent curable. They're, they're, they're curable. And I'm not just talking about through lifestyle, but I'm not through medications that exist today. Right. And so uh, from, from a human perspective, we are, ha- I, I take a shot twice a month in order to achieve that, right. To, to, to block that. But fundamentally I do believe that, that that's something that could be gene edited at some point. Right. And so I think in the near term, there will be applications of gene editing and gene therapies that, that cure that. I think in the long term, I don't think Chris Mason's wrong. I, I think that we can become more radiation tolerant and with more radiation tolerant that people think about, oh, that allows us to be a face, uh, a space fearing species. It also allows less breakdown of our DNA and lets us probably live longer on earth. Um, and so, um, you know, the sun is not always our best friend in that. Right. And so, um, so I do think that, that from, you know, I, I we already know about genes like myostatin, myostatin, if you've seen the Belgian blue cows, you know, uh, we can double muscle mass. We, we can, that's one edit, right? It's one knockout. Like I'm not saying you should do it. Uh, some bodybuilders don't believe you should do it, but, but, uh, but fundamentally to, to, to your point, you know, I think that, you know, uh, we, we live at a really interesting time and, you know, from an ethical framework perspective and a regulation perspective, I think that we just have to be mindful of ethics regulation. Um, but, but I do think from a technology perspective, we are surpassing uh, uh, the rate limits of, of regulation and, and, and ethics in terms of what's possible. More is possible today than we as humans are allowed to, to do. Yeah, yeah. I had a, a really interesting conversation with Jonathan Anomaly, who is out here in Austin, and he is about to release at some point uh, a company that has been ready for a long time, which does uh, embryo selection. It does embryo selection based on risk for all manner of different things, but it also can select. It can also select for IQ, uh, and it doesn't select for IQ, but it gives you a risk profile. Yeah, and so where, where does where does eugenics start and stop? Right. It, 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 so but now, not only that, not only not only that, but with, with I asked him this question. I think it's very interesting. Is what's the difference between embryo selection? Which you could do right now, like you'd yeah. just be like, if you don't have the actual samples, you're like yeah, closing yeah. your eyes and going uh, IVF number yeah. five or whatever, right? Yes. Um, what's the? Is there a difference? Is there a fundamental ethical difference between embryo selection and genetic enhancement? Is there? And his so it, argument is no. I would argue. I would argue that the answer is no because it, people are like, but we can't create like GMOs or genetically modified organisms are bad. I'm like. We've been creating GMOs with crops for thousands of years. We've just been doing it very inefficiently. We've been crossbreeding shit and crossing our fingers, right? And like that, we've been doing that with dogs. We have dogs that are all different shapes and sizes that aren't even very, some of them are genetically disposed to cancer because of, we, of the decisions that we have made through selective breeding. But selective breeding is a form of genetic engineering. And so I would argue, no, it's really not at its core. And, and so before, I, I don't know what exactly his tech is, but another company I'm not affiliated with, but it's called Orchid Health. George Church also co-founded it. And they actually, you know, in, in when couples have, have a baby, they'll get a, they'll get genetic testing to see if they're compatible. Some people do compatible, some tests 
you know, for Down syndrome and other stuff in womb, right? And sometimes people feel like that's controversial, but people do it. And then um, what's interesting though now to your IVF point is once you have those embryos, to your point, you can cross your, you know, close your eyes and pick one. But what's really interesting is now they're doing a risk score where they're saying this, you know, this may be like the absolute best looking uh, gene or best looking embryo, but, you know, we do full genome sequencing on it. Now we can tell you that, you know, it, this has a predisposition to late stage Alzheimer's, right? So do do you, even though, even though everything else about it's healthy, do you want to insert that one or do you want to take the gamble that, and we're going to do I mean, this is, this, this ultimately is the most interesting part of what I learned from Jonathan, um, which is at the moment, what we do is we roll the dice right we roll the dice with whichever whichever is the fastest sperm whichever is the egg that was timed at the right time of the month or whatever 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 with the right. right particular month that is rolling and the, it seems like there are a number of defense mechanisms i learned that um around about 50% of all fertilized eggs are cast out of a woman's body without her realizing within the first fortnight that it's just you wouldn't you, you don't even miss anything at all and there is you know, you you could imagine why that would be adaptive. That there's something that's not gone quite right here. Perhaps this is yeah. an early warning system that just ejects this particular egg. Yeah, that's is that what... a mis is that a miscarriage? Yeah, well, if you weren't aware of it, kind of. And so they, so I, uh, I, I don't know if the stats right, but I, I believe this is in the ballpark. I, uh, I think George may have told me this, but uh, natural birth is about an 8% success rate, which is kind of crazy because there's so many of these early stage uh, ejections that you don't even know about that, 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 or that the woman doesn't know, that the female doesn't know about. And so it's really interesting, um, you know, because like even IVF only gets you up to 50-50, right? And so like you're, it's crazy to me. And part of the reason why I think some of those are only 50-50 is because they are not doing full genome sequencing of the embryos. So you can have a, a developing embryo that, that, that looks great in in microscope, but it has a genetic defect that at a certain point will not work. The body um, just says so, nope. Yeah, and so so you so you're starting to your point. It's, it takes like your if you have this many embryos, you then go through a freezing process and you can get through this. It keeps going down and down and down until you do it. But I think that what what uh, Jonathan's doing uh, and what Orchid Health are doing are really really important. And you know, dude, but I also believe that you know personalized healthcare, everyone needs to take responsibility for that. They should get full genome sequencing. They should know what's, you know, fundamentally not accurate I had, in the uh, body. I, I had mine done uh, the other, a couple of months ago. I got one copy of the C677T mutation, not associated as a major driver of homocysteine levels. It's not as bad as this other one, blah, blah, blah. Just make sure that you supplement with... B vitamins and some methylated, some other bullshit. Anyway, uh, I had that done. I also went and had a uh, full body MRI, brain angiogram, yeah. heart angiogram, DEXA done scan. All, yeah, yeah. yeah. If you, did you go to Fountain Life, uh, Peter Diamandis? Uh, I didn't. No, no. So Peter's a good friend. He's an advisor and investor in Colossal. Uh, oh, no, yeah. I've done. I've just done a lot of that individually. I've I've even done a CT uh, uh, cardiac angiogram scan, which gets you, which then uses this clearly analysis, this AI tool where they can tell more. Think about this. Like a few years ago, they were like still doing, it's, I think people still do. They do angiograms by sticking like a cap into your body and going into your heart and looking at it, right? Like that all can be now done with imaging and AI. So you can see yeah. like 
pre-plaque buildup. It's incredible. And so, did you have the? Uh, um, I, so I I got an image of of the whatever the left ventricle first first thing out, and they were like, yeah, yeah. oh, we've got like 0.5% or whatever. Did you do the thing where they uh, IV you with that shit that makes your torso go really really hot? Yeah, 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 and it, it makes you feel like you're gonna pee. Yeah, dude, that is the craziest yeah, feeling. Yeah. Yeah, that's the that uh, that that's the contrast, and makes you feel like it makes me feel like I'm pee. And so I was Dude, like, it was insane. It's what it's what I imagine being a dragon feels like. Oh, oh yeah, hundred percent. I, I know exactly the feeling. But but interestingly enough, like this kind of goes to I don't know what exactly the results were, but going back to like LDL, right? They've now shown that if you can get LDL down to fifty to seventy five, not only well, sub hundred, it doesn't continue to accumulate, but but 50 to 75, it actually reverses. And Dr. Osborne uh, in Dallas, he's, he's incredible. Um, he's one of the pioneers in this field. And what, what's, what's, what's really crazy about it is, you know, if you can start to not just like, you can stop and prevent any buildup, but you can reverse any damage that's there. I mean, you're not going to die of heart attack or stroke. Like, yeah. like you, you, that is a mitigatable thing. And you may have to not just change lifestyle, you may have to take a, a, a cocktail of, co- of drugs to it. For the rest of your um, life. Yeah. But yeah. It's, it's, so, it's interesting. Um, I, I understand why people get icky. And I maybe would have done and if Jonathan... I'll send you the, the episode. You should check it out with him. I think you'd really enjoy to. it. I'd love to. Yeah, yeah. He, he really just very slowly walked me through, step by step, um, all of the different ways that we make adjustments to ourselves and that we have done to other animals. So we've done it through selective breeding. We've done it to yeah. get rid of the pips out of bananas and also make them bigger and sweeter and all this sort of bullshit. And then we do it to ourselves. We modify ourselves with, I'm going to take this antibiotic or I'm going to take this particular type of painkiller. I'm going to take this yeah. particular statin. I'm going to take this whatever. And he goes, okay, so let's take this one step further. You are a person who has a predisposition to anxiety or depression and you go through um, embryo selection and we can see on there, we could maybe do some sort of polygenic score and say, it seems based on our data, based on the AI, this particular embryo would have a predisposition towards a depression. Would it not? Like if you found, as you were the you're, person that had lived in your life. Your kids, you're going to put your kids in the best school, right? So why not start them off the best they can be? Correct. And then he said, well, you as a person who has depression or figuratively, hypothetically had depression, if you found out that your parents had the opportunity to step in and not give you depression, either through embryo selection, which actually technically would mean that you weren't here, so it kind of yeah, doesn't yeah, work. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah. Uh, but we forget that bit. Uh, or through uh, gene enhancement and say, what? You, you cursed me with this thing. And as soon as you concede, or let's say that it was something really extreme, right? Like you're going to be born with like one foot or like some sort yeah. of deformity or you were going to, whatever, whatever. It's like you could have given me, you could have taken this away from me. As soon as you concede that that is a, and I think he's right, a moral thing to do to allow that to occur. It's off to the races all the way down to maximizing IQ. Like yeah. it's the full and, and, and gamut. One of the things that, that isn't talked enough about is like, you know, you know, other countries have different ethical views, right? Like, you know, BGI in China is Beijing Genomics Institute has said, we're sequencing everyone we can and we're trying to find the smartest humans and we're going to use it. Right. And so. Assortative yeah. mating, baby, just done yeah. by, done by computer. Yeah. And so it, it's just, it is one of those things that, you know, 
you know, there needs to be more work in effort in thoughtful regulation of these technologies because we can make the world better through gene editing. Like we we, we yeah. can do that. I'm, a, yeah. I'm obviously, I mean, I, I work at Colossal, so I do fundamentally believe that. Um, but, you know, I, I do think that, that a, a deeper lens on healthcare because I think that we could, we have the tools and technologies to make humanity better um, today. Ben Lamb, ladies and gentlemen. Ben, I appreciate the hell out of you. Your work's fascinating. Uh, I'm glad that it's not me having to turn up with this pressure on my shoulders every day, but I think they've chosen the right guy for the job. Where should people go? Okay. They want to keep up to date with all of the stuff uh, that you're getting up to. Colossal.com. Oh, yeah. Ben, I appreciate you. Thank you, man. Awesome. Thank you. <laughs>